welcome to what, amazingly, is episode 25 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Derek Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. In this episode, our guest spoke about violence in schools. The conversation moved between violent and deadly attacks and the ways in which daily dehumanizations in schools exert a violence as well. They asked poignant and pointed questions about why schools as a location of violence and queried what it means to live with guns. The conversation was moving and hard. While I appreciated so much that our guests said, something special about this conversation was their desire to draw people into conversation on this topic, to think about meaningful change that incorporates a range of needs and wants and their capacity to listen and listen carefully as they unpack what is happening. Finally, I appreciate their emphasis that their choice to work around school violence comes from the heart, and philosophy, for them, offers one small way to act for better. Welcome. It is very exciting to have both of you on the show and to see both of you this morning. And this episode, we are talking about violence in schools, broadly defined. And I'm going to ask Sam if you can start by introducing yourself. Thanks for having me. I'm Samantha Dean. I'm at Boston College. I'm the director of the Formative Leadership Education Project here at Boston College and uh, teach in the Formative Education Department. And Brian? Hi, I'm Brian Warnick. I'm a professor in the Philosophy and History of Education program here at The Ohio State University. The Ohio State. Yes, thank you both very much. I have to say, this is totally off book, that like one of my favorite things about doing these recordings uh, is hearing Kara's transition from like regular voice to NPR voice as like we (laughs) press record. You have a good NPR voice, Kara. Thanks. I've been practicing. I had to up my game. I think I think Derek already had it worked out. So I'm working on it. It's very, it's very good. So I mean, this is a weird transition from like that little bit to like, let's talk about violence. But uh, starting with Sam, let me ask, uh, you know, what sparked your interest in this particular issue? Was there a particular moment or incident or philosophical concern? Tell us the story of how you got interested in this idea. Yeah, I work on the project of school gun violence or the problem of school gun violence. Uh, And for me, it was personal. I grew up uh, just a few blocks from where the Columbine high school shooting took place. I was in eighth grade at the time. So, you know, getting ready to head into high school and thinking about high school uh, and have vivid uh, memories of that day. and, and the days thereafter, uh, my mom was, uh, felt that I was insufficiently showing empathy or understanding for the events that took place. And, uh, the day following Columbine took me to the school where, uh, the pop-up memorials had taken place. And so it, at, this is, you know, a few decades ago, this is in 1999, uh, and we were still in the middle of these, uh, big events of, of rampage school gun violence. We, the media, it was still a media circus. And um, so it was a different time and how these events were recorded and, and, and how they unfolded. Uh, so the memorial that took place at Columbine High School was the cars of, of all of the students who had died uh, were still in the parking lot. And the um, students had come out and, you know, flowers and bears and posters. And, uh, and it was just this walking graveyard uh, at a high school for students who had just passed. And so I was, um, that was my first entry into school gun violence or this, this topic really affecting me personally. I didn't uh, then come to uh, undergrad or graduate school thinking, oh, I'm going to study school gun violence. In fact, I was interested in studying uh, democracy and decline or thinking about the uh, context and content of democracies as they fall apart. And I was studying this through Plato's Republic and uh, accidentally landed on a question about education. And that led me to to think about these two things in um, in tandem. And then Sandy Hook happened. 
And that took me back to the, to school gun violence. And, and I started asking whether there was a way that we could talk about school gun violence as a problem of democracy, as, as a flashpoint of dem- democracy in decline, um, as a, um, you know, something that reveals to us the problems of democratic education and where we're failing at this, this project. Excellent. Thank you, Sam. Brian? I think there are two tracks that kind of led me here, uh, a professional track and then a personal track, uh, much like Sam. So I think uh, the personal was Sandy Hook. And uh, I had children about the same age as those children were uh, when they were were killed in that elementary school. And I remember tucking my son in at night uh, with his Legos um, and just feeling like feeling the immensity of the tragedy, uh, feeling a a personal connection to it, Um, especially when I heard that some of those other kids were kind of buried with Legos in the, in the, in the graves, uh, after that tragedy. Um, and I just had this feeling like I needed to, to do something. And as philosophers, our ability to do something, um, at least with respect to our professional careers, often involves theorizing, which is kind of a weak, sometimes an impotent way of doing something, but it's what I could do. Um, so uh, that kind of led me to want to write about this. Um, it coincided with my professional activities somewhat because I had always been interested in technologies and how those shape and influence our, our educational processes and schools. And that led to an interest in security technology, safety tech and security technologies like, uh, surveillance cameras in schools. Um, and, uh, with that background, some people started to see me as kind of the, the security in schools guy. And, uh, Ed Theory asked me to review a number of articles on school shootings, uh, since this had to do with, with school safety and security. Um, so there were a number of, of books that I read. And this all coincided with Sandy Hook. So I was, I was reading books at the same time. I had this personal weight on my shoulders and, uh, that led to my first, uh, publication. Uh, it was a book review piece, uh, that was published in Ed Theory in a number of years ago. So it was kind of this, this bringing together of both a professional tr- track and uh, a deeply personal concern that was weighing on me. Thanks, Brian. Thank you both for entering in, um, in this way. And, uh, I just want to emotionally respond to what you've said. It just, um, hearing both of you talk brings up a lot of feelings for me as well. So I, I want to acknowledge that, um, in, uh, research methods class that I'm teaching right now, I've been talking to the students about where they come up with their question. And we've been talking about sort of the, the heart problems and not the heart problems, but the, the, the questions that come to our heart. And so both of your comments, I think are just a reminder that the research often moves really far away from where that initial sort of heart origin is. But I think for good research, it usually is there. It actually matters to us in very deep ways. Um, so I appreciate that too. And for your, um, willingness to bring forward that part of it. Um, I want to also just very briefly say that I'm, I like numbers and, or I like significance with numbers. And this is going to be our 25th episode coming out. And our very first one was on punishment in schools and featured some work, Brian, that, um, you had done with, um, Cam Scribner as well. And so it just seems really fitting that we're talking about violence in schools and that that topic is pretty broad, um, but also I think interconnected in some ways. So speaking broadly, um, which I have just done, what have you found out about um, this issue and through your research process? And Brian, you want to start a little bit about what you have learned about violence in schools through your research? Sure. Um, one of the things I've tended to focus on is why, why schools are chosen as places that seem appropriate for violence. Um, you know, with this recent wave of mass shootings that we have, it seems like schools are kind of 
fading into the background as particularly unique places for, for gun violence. Um, but a number of years ago, it really stood out how often schools were being chosen as places to enact mass gun violence. So I really wanted to, to understand why that is. Um, and I think uh, I was dissatisfied with the discourse of the, the solutions that we were being proposed, um, uh, particularly having to do with kind of target hardening uh, of schools, in- increasing the presence of police officers or, or arming teachers or, or that sort of thing. Uh, and to me, that kind of uh, maybe there might be a place for some of that, but it kind of um, ignored the meaning of schools and how the meaning that we attribute to schools in American society uh, can contribute perhaps to the the, uh, the wave of school shootings that, that was occurring. So that was that was a key question. Why are schools chosen? Why what meaning do we attribute to schools? that makes them seem appropriate to enact such places of, of sometimes theatrical uh, violence. And uh, one of the things uh, I came to and my collaborators came to was that schools themselves are often chosen uh, at, for places of violence because they are experienced as places of violence. They're experienced as, as places of coercion, of control, of... Uh, of being targeted and, and picked on either uh, through the peer culture that exists or through the, the, the curriculum or the practices of teaching. So schools are often, uh, they're experienced as places of violence. They're, they're experienced as places of competition. Uh, sometimes uh, schools are described as a, as a status tournament of adolescence. You know, we rank students, we sort students, Kings, queens, top of the class, bottom of the class, all these different ways we, we, we pit students against each other in schemes of, of competition. Um, and just the size of schools is kind of these, these, uh, huge bureaucracies where there's a lack of a personal element, uh, a personal touch. Uh, there's just these kind of face, faceless sometimes bureaucracies where students can get lost and, and dehumanized to some extent. So I think uh, all of these factors contribute into uh, a certain sort of meaning that we attribute to schools. It says, hey, because I've experienced schools as places of violence, as places of dehumanization, as places of, of competition, this is a place where I am myself going to to enact these scripts right, that, that have played out for me. Uh, in school. So I, I think, as I think about my contribution to all this, it's, it's been trying to figure out, uh, those, those sort of meaning systems and how they attribute to school shootings and then some, some suggestions that grow out of that about how to deal with, with school shootings. Thank you. And Samantha? Um, Brian's work has been central to, to what I've built on and thinking about, uh, school gun violence. And I, you know, there are two categories, at least, but we could certainly parse these apart. There's rampage school gun violence, which is sort of the mass shooting events on school grounds, things like Columbine and Sandy Hook. And then there are everyday instances of gun violence. A student brings a gun to school to show their friend and the gun goes off or, you know, um, sort of these everyday instances. And perhaps a third category, one that we're not even talking about here is suicide. That that happens on school grounds. And those are just some like gun related violence on, on school grounds. Uh, what's interesting is in 2022. So right. The year marked by COVID uh, and online learning and back and forth of students to, to schools and, and to their homes, there were still 177 incidents of gunfire on school grounds and 46 acts of violence. Uh, and that's 34 students and adults died. More than 43,000 children were exposed to gun violence. That's according to every town for gun safety. Uh, so one of the things I've, I've tried to think about is in, in balancing uh, the flashier rampage school gun violence, which really puts into um, sort of vivid light the problem of gun violence and these everyday constantly occurring acts of violence with guns on school grounds is to 
question the thing that holds them together, which is the gun, um, right? None of these could happen if, if guns didn't uh, coexist with us in society. And I think from the start of the project of thinking about uh, what it is to, to be a democratic uh, participant and have political agency and to live in a democracy, I've been thinking about what it is to do this with guns. Um, and so I, I set aside uh, the fact that it's happening at school, that that's, you know, key to, to sort of the site of, of the instance. And I set aside the, uh, we could say the sort of um, diagnosis of the shooter that, that often ends up happening um, in these events of um, who the person is and, and what um, ailments they may be suffering from. Uh, I set aside their background um, and, and ask what guns have to do with us. Uh, what is it that we've, we've initiated uh, by living with guns? And the interesting part, so Americans have a complex historical relationship with guns, right? And um, the Second Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, indicate that, that or seem to put forth a, a world in which guns are not going away. Uh, you know, what, you know, regardless of how you think about the Second Amendment, regardless of the kinds of gun control policies that uh, come down, there are more guns than people in the United States. And and we can't just magic those all away. Um, one, because they're protected under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and two, uh, because we, we don't have magic, right? Um, this isn't... <laughs> this is a, a fiction novel. Uh, so instead, we need a, you know, a comprehensive solution. You hear this all the time. Uh, but what kind of comprehensive solution could this be? And so I, I, I wonder what it's like to rethink life with guns. Um, we've, in the United States, been living with guns since the founding of the country. Uh, and we've done education with guns since the founding of the country. If you go back and look through... Uh, the history of education and narratives about guns in schools. Uh, you'll see uh, examples and stories of, you know, school shooting teams, like, uh, you know, sport shooting teams. And uh, you'll hear examples of, especially um, in rural areas of, of kids coming to, to school with their gun uh, because it's a part of their daily life. Uh, and yet we didn't have this, this historical watershed of, of school gun violence until the late eighties, uh, early nineties, there were instances before that, but they were random and few and far between. Uh, so it seems like there's something important about our historical, you know, the last 40 years, uh, where we've come as a society, where we are as a democracy, what we think about in terms of how we understand what it is to be a political agent, what it is to act in this world, and also what that means uh, or how that's inflected by our relationship with guns. So, um, you know, my my sense is for the immediate future, for the next year, two years, five years, um, so the for the future that we can see and that we can enact, what we can do is learn to live with guns and learn to do so democratically. And that's a wild proposition for for many uh but i think that's the the um that's the way we move forward in a space where we can have conversations uh with children with one another about the world we're making with the objects that we hold dear thank you i want to ask a brief follow-up question um which has evolved a little bit as you've been talking. So I have been teaching in a uh, rural location for the last 10 years. And um, that has been, for me, a lesson in learning to live with guns in a different way um, and respecting um, the community that I am teaching in where um, hunting is a big part of people's lives. Um, for many, gun safety is a big part of their lives and how they hunt. And I've definitely had a number of students um, who hunt for food because they can't afford the supermarket. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, because um, I'm sure you've, you've thought about it a lot more than me, about what learning to live with guns might look like a little bit um, within with maybe a little bit of a nod to that context. Yeah, I think... Uh 
this, Kara, this evolved for me because of that precise um, encounter, right? Um, and I grew up in a family that hunted. Uh, and I vividly recall as a kid guns, you know, my father putting a gun in my hand and wanting me to know what this object was. Um, and I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 and, and didn't want anything to do with it, right? Wanted to just run away from whatever this thing was. It felt scary and heavy, uh, in you know, multiple ways. And yeah, so guns were part of my life. We ate, you know, the food that was hunted, um, guns were around the home and I was always fearful of them, even though they were part of my world. And as I started working on this project, um, I have a lot of family in rural parts of the country and they would ask me what it is that I was doing. Uh, and every time I mentioned, you know, anything gun comes out of my mouth and, and, you know, somebody with an NRA hat is, is asking me, wait, what do you mean precisely by, um, what kind of research are you doing and what do you think we should do with guns? And it was really through these conversations uh, with folks that I started to rethink the the project. At first, I wanted to say, well, what we need to do is get rid of all the guns. Because if we get rid of all the guns and we get rid of the school shootings, that's just logically sound. Um, perhaps some other kinds of violence will, will unfold. But school shootings are dependent on the gun. Um, but you know, beside that being willful and just naive and this sort of wishful hope that all the guns go away, there was also something important to people's personal histories, their stories of their family, uh, how they enact visions of a good life uh, that are tied to guns. And though this is also gendered, right? So there are masculine notions of of what it is to hunt and have a gun and use a gun. Uh, it's not necessarily so. There are many women who are hunters and, and who uh, find distinct relationships with guns. Uh, so, you know, it, philosophically, I go about the project of figuring out how to learn to live with guns by thinking about objects as, as things with some sort of agency, some sort of small agency. So I draw on folks like Bruno Latour or Jane Bennett, who are in the new materialist school of philosophy, whose aim is to position differently the objects that we live with um, and to ask us to rethink what we mean by action and agency. Traditionally, we understand these as human-centered. A human is somebody who moves objects. A human is a person who picks up the gun. Uh, so you, the popular phrase in the United States right, is that gun, there, there's the, the dualism. Guns don't kill people, people kill people. Um, right, or the sort of back and forth. Um, on the guns don't kill people, people kill people side of the equation. You have this idea that it's people who use the object, right? So people are the masters of the object. Uh, on the side of the equation where guns uh, kill people, uh, you have the idea that the object is the thing that does the acting. And so the object comes, the gun comes with this script, right? That the minute you pick it up, you can't but help kill somebody. Well, all of that's wrong, of course. Uh, humans and objects interact and objects give us different affordances. With a cell phone in your hand, you're a different person. With a gun in your hand, you are a different person. And I, my sense is that if we can have the conversation about who you become with the gun in your hand, the kind of self you imagine your, yourself to be, right? The narratives you all of a sudden construct for yourself now that you have the gun in the hand, uh, that will be able to craft a future that is more livable. So I see this as, uh, maybe this is crazy, but as really, you know, I guess what my dad tried to do, but didn't do so, uh, or I didn't take it very educationally, but saying, okay, here's a gun, put it in your hand. What do you, what do you feel? Uh, how, what does this unfold for you? But having a conversation about who you become with the gun in your hand, um, what this new actor, this hybrid actor, is and might be able to do what it makes you feel. I think if we have more conversations like that, um, more education that's centered around the interplay between objects and humans, uh, we'll be able to enact uh, more democratic futures. Thanks very much for that answer. Um, let me, this is kind of a follow-up. Sam has already answered it a little bit, I think, but so let me start with Brian on this one. Uh, 
Brian, you had mentioned earlier that like, you know, the desire to do something and that desire being channeled through, you know, being a philosopher. So could you say a little bit more about how you bring philosophy as uh, a set of tools to this particular problem. This is particularly relevant, I think, for lots of our listeners who uh, are similarly to you engaging with questions that are prompted by current events and sort of institutional and policy histories. And so thinking about that from a philosophical perspective is quite valuable. So just a little insight into how you go about doing that. Sure. Yeah. A great question. Um, so I think there's a number of tasks that are relevant to philosophy when it comes to thinking through gun violence. I, I think philosophers excel at, at perhaps gaining a sense of larger perspective and at exploring questions uh, of meaning. So I think the first task is to try to figure out, um, you know, how should, how should we start to, to, how should we feel about gun violence in schools? So for example, um, it is still the case that schools are pretty safe places for students to be. They're one of the, the safest places uh, for, for kids to be, safer than home, safer than on the street, these sorts of things. Um, so uh, how can we reconcile that with a need to, to take school shootings seriously, right? So we need to balance this, this tendency between uh, acknowledging that schools are often doing a really good job keeping kids safe, with the idea that, hey, school shootings are real and it's something we knew, need to do something about. So I think the philosopher can kind of step in and, and try to help us balance these two competing perspectives. Um, I think secondly, I, uh, philosophy has a, a role in questioning the ethics of the strategy of target hardening. Um, so one response to school shootings is to increase safety and security technologies, to increase the presence of police officers, to arm teachers. Um, what, what do we think of these things from an ethical perspective? Um, uh, how does, how does uh, a teacher think of their job differently when they have a firearm, right? This gets back to some of the things Sam was talking about. Possessing a gun changes how we think about ourselves and the job that we have to do. So if we go to the route of arming teachers, how does that change the, how does it change how we think about teaching, you know, to have this tool available? Um, third, I think, uh, we need to propose solutions that not just deal with target hardening or, or safety and security or even public policy, but how is this an educational problem? What can we do differently in schools to change the systems of meaning, uh, so that they're not interpreted as places appropriate, uh, for violence? Um, fourth, I think there's a project in, in trying to, uh, perhaps delineate the role, the proper role of schools within this, within the bigger picture of social policy. While we can improve, uh, schools and make them safer places and do a lot of things to, to, to decrease school shootings within the school environment, what, how do we balance that with, uh, with other broader social policy initiatives like gun control or access to, to mental health? Where should be our, our focus when, uh, when we think about school shootings? So those are, those are kind of four broad areas where I think philosophy has a helpful role to play. Thank you. Um, the safer in schools thing really resonates as you're talking. Uh, cause I, Again, I think about the statistics of the state where I used to work and the biggest risk um, is domestic violence. That's the biggest risk of gun violence, actually. And so it's it's often something I talk about because every semester my students are really anxious about school violence. And we talk about, you know, where are um, teachers and children actually most endangered? And it, it's often at home, um, which I think brings us to the next question, which we often frame this as a policy question, although um, in our last episode, they pushed back on policy a little bit because they didn't consider themselves to be policy makers. Um, but I want to say either implications for policy or implications for structure, which may speak more to um, where where your mind goes. So structurally, what um, what could we be doing differently so that we are creating safer schools, but also safer societies, I think. And you may want to go towards policy, Brian, but, or Sam, but. 
Uh, well, I, I think I could jump in here and, and talk about what I think. I, you know, I, I'm torn about whether this is a policy prescription or whether it's something that we kind of uh, embody in our roles as teachers and how that relates to policy and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I, I think um, so if, if schools are experienced as places of violence and, and coercion and if this somehow contributes to the phenomenon of school shootings, well, uh, the solution to that is to try to find ways to rehumanize um, schools, to to decrease the status tournament of adolescence and make schools uh, less competitive, less cutthroat, uh, to make sure that students know that they're, they're known, that teachers and, and staff know their names, that they're valued. Um, uh, so I, I think um, school culture plays a big role in how we come to rehumanize uh, schools. If you look at, um, there is a, there's a huge literature on uh, school shooters and and what drove them and what motivated them. And if you look at the uh, the empirical literature, there's detailed case studies on sp- specific uh, incidences of school shootings, especially these high profile incidents like Columbine or, or Uvalde or something like that. People meticulously go through them and study them, uh, but there's less interest in what happens when school shootings are averted. Uh, what what actually prevented a school shooting from occurring? And uh, I haven't done any large-scale analysis of this, but there's some anecdotal evidence that suggests, well, what what seems to matter is kind of open trust and communication within the school. So here in the Columbus area, uh, a few years ago, there was a, a student who seemed very serious about enacting one of these high-profile school shootings. He he had a map of the school. He had purchased tactical gear. He had accumulated weapons. He had a plan on what, what was going to happen. And that was averted uh, not through some uh, target-hardening procedure or security protocol. Uh, what happened was his his friends noticed something was wrong. And they talked to a teacher about it. There was this element of trust and communication uh, that students felt like their voice mattered uh, and it was their job to kind of check in on each other as peers. And the school would help, you know, if, if they said something. And the school was able to, to intervene and, and the school shooting was averted. And you see that play out in a number anecdotally across. They're usually in small newspaper articles. A school shooting averted because students talk to teachers, they notice something. So um, whatever we can do to build schools as places of trust and open communication and mutual concern, um, these are the sorts of things that we could do on a school level. And there are certain policies you can act, but also it's it kind of it comes down to how we embody our roles as educators as well. Uh, but so it's, you know, maybe using a multi-pronged approach to rehumanize schools and build them into places of trust is one solution to school shootings that we don't hear about much, uh, but I think is really key and essential if we w- really want to grapple with this problem. Thank you. Before we go on to Samantha, can you just say what target targeting, t- target hardening means also you've used the phrase a few times yeah sorry about that of of course i need to define my terms uh so schools are the the target and the idea is that we need to create build them into fortresses right uh so we need to have strict control about who comes and goes uh we need to have metal detectors to prevent uh, weapons from entering the school. Just just build them in into kind of a mix of fort. It's almost a mix of fortress and prison, right? So it increases the control of students within the school and creates a kind of this moat, this chasm between the school and the the community. So it's it's, it's just making schools a hard hardened target, so they're not as soft and and, and vulnerable to to people who want to do uh, violence. Um, but that, that comes with a number of costs. Uh, as there's some research that shows that as schools enact these sorts of procedures, there's less community involvement. Uh, right? Schools are seen as these places that are inaccessible uh, by members of the community. You, you have to go through layers of security protocols 
sometimes in order to enter schools, you need a background check, you know, to, to volunteer. And, and, you know, these, these might be wise on, on some level, uh, but they also create this idea that schools are not places for the community to engage, right? So uh, target hardening um, comes with costs, and there's very little evidence that kind of shows that this makes schools a safer place in, in the end. Thank you very much. I appreciate your um, explaining that. Samantha, what do you think about policy and structural change here? Yeah, um, I think, you know, building on uh, what Brian was saying about the idea of rehumanizing schools uh, by building, you know, a, a shared trust or just trust in general um, and creating schools, you know, as if they are communities, sort of going back to the, the Dewey and concept that a school is a community and a community is a school. Uh, you know, I, another aspect or another way to, to say this would be uh, to focus on shared responsibility. Um, and I, part of my intuition in, in studying school gun violence has been to, to move away from the narratives um, where we blame individual school shooters and, you know, criminalize them and, and, you know, cast them out as bad apples, um, which is, doesn't get us anywhere. Um, as Brian mentioned, there, there are a number of people who devote themselves to, um, you know, writing out the case studies of the shooters of these high profile shooters and diagnosing everything in their background. Um, and this is perhaps useful uh, in thinking about psychological treatment and mental health. And um, on the one hand, right. But on the other, it, it helps us and it continues to reaffirm a, a narrative that says that these individuals are, are not us. They are, they are, they went bad, right? And and so if we cast them out, then everything will be fine over here in this overly secured school. Uh, and I don't think that's such. I don't think that's true. I think that we share responsibility for the world that we create. We share responsibility for a social system, for a school uh, that didn't see this individual as an individual and didn't give them a place to to be seen and heard and understood. Um, so, I mean, this is this is echoing, you know, Brian's uh, sentiment here, which is that, you know, there is good evidence that says uh, if we treat schools and the education they're in as a space of mutual education, a space of shared responsibility for each other, for the world we create, uh, that less violence is a result, less, you know, interpersonal violence, but and certainly less gun violence. Of course, this is balanced with the litigious society in which we live, where um, schools enact all of these hardening measures um, and so that they can't be sued. And, and um, you know, as we saw with the aftermath of Uvalde, uh, and the, whether the door was locked or unlocked, right? And, and there was all of this finger pointing about the locking of the door, uh, as, as the thing that caused or, or allowed the, the event to happen. Uh, and I think that that's problematic because that focuses on the door locking. Uh, sure, if that door had been locked, the shooter would have been thwarted. The shooter would have likely gone somewhere else, right? Um, we're still not addressing the problem of, of gun violence. Um, and why, why it is that people go after children in schools or their own community in schools, right? Their peers. Uh, one of the interesting policy proposals uh, that has gone through various state legislators, places like North Carolina and Utah, uh, have, but have, has failed um, to usually make it into school buildings, has been a policy to put into play gun safety education. Like you could think of like sex education, right? Um, and usually these are uh, like the NRA's uh, Eddie the Eagle program or National Rifle Association or National Gun Safety Association, sorry, has another similar like program. And these programs are, um, the educational arc goes like this. Uh, you see a gun, you leave it where it is, you go tell an adult. Um, that's the summary of the educational program, which isn't necessarily terrible. Uh, though empirical evidence points to the fact that this doesn't work so well once you put kids into the context in which they are kids and there are peers around and, you know, then it becomes a, Hey, look what I found. Let me show you this. Not, you know, you don't necessarily follow the training, uh, but instead you, you're a kid, right. With an object. Uh, one of the interesting things about this 
these policy proposals is that they they could um, they could be useful, right? If they found their way into school, if there was such a, an elective uh, that was something like gun safety education, but that wasn't just a programmatic prescription of here's a weapon when you see it, run away from it, but an engaged conversation with what is it to live with guns? Uh, what is it to have these as a part of our society? How do you safely engage them? What do you do when you see them? Um, but also, you know, what's the history here anyways? How did we get this particular gun? Why is this one on the table? How was it made? Who made it? Uh, if we had fuller conversations about the objects and if these policy mechanisms that are currently, um, I mean, 2021 Utah was just putting another one through their, their house. Um, you know, might these in fact be a way to, um, what's the de-harden, unharden, soften? That's what we want, soften schools, but to do so in a way, uh, that doesn't just give up on the reality of gun violence, right? That, that sort of is, moderates the, the reality of gun violence with, and of living with guns, but also recognizes the purpose of schools. Thank you both. So our last question is usually around what do administrators or teachers do kind of going forward? And I'm going to offer the question in a pretty concrete, particular way, and you can choose to answer it that way or go your own route. Um, I hear Brian, you talking about consciously softening schools. And I'm thinking about your work on thinking a lot about punishment and how we create communities in schools. And so I'm thinking about long before the gun ends up in the student's hand, sort of what would, what would a teacher ideally be doing as they're thinking about being included in conflict and maybe a child who is angry and what, what might a teacher be doing in the classroom when that child is angry in the ways that children are every day. Um, you know, maybe they're pushing around a chair, maybe they're yelling back, maybe they're talking back, all of those things. Um, and Samantha, I'm interested in this very concrete way of how do you actually learn to live with guns in school and, and what might a curriculum look like? Because, um, as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, we could have an elective where they go hunting, but that could also just lead to really effective sharpshooters. And I don't think we want that either. So, uh, you know, or that could be like very dangerous, like tr tr a kind of training for militarization of towards some particular cause, um, which to me feels dangerous. Um, so what what could this thing look like on the ground? I would say uh, two things. First of all, it's it lies in what a teacher should reject. Uh, so, you know, you, you see these policy initiatives that are trying to, to arm teachers that sees the solution to school shootings as to have somebody with a gun, a, a good guy with a gun in there to counter the, the threat. Uh, I think this, this totally kind of misrepresents and misconceives the role uh, of a teacher. It changes how the teacher sees students, um, not as as a learner or somebody with certain needs, but as somebody who constitutes a potential threat. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, reasons to worry that, especially with things like implicit bias, that uh, students of color will come under particular suspicion as, as uh, people who, who are, who constitute threats. Um, and I, I can foresee tragic circumstances growing out of that. Uh, not to mention, you know, if we have millions of guns lying around schools and drawers, accidents are bound to happen. Tragedies are, are going to result, that sort of thing. Uh, I think uh, there's a positive project too, that teachers uh, need to create these classrooms of, of trust and, and communication. And this needs to happen right from day one, um, before any student starts to act out or to manifest threatening behaviors, uh, establishing a, a sort of climate in the classroom where students feel like their voices are heard uh, uh, where students feel like they don't have to enact violence in order to express themselves. Um, uh, I, th I think one of the, one of the things you see in these high profile student, uh, school shootings is this idea that violence seems to be their preferred or their only means of, of expression. Uh, so how can we make schools and classrooms 
open to alternative means of, of expression, helping them to develop their poetic voice or learning how to express themselves through in the essay format, you know, things that really coincide with what we think of as, as the mission of, of schools. Um, you, you were kind of nudging me to talk about punishment and discipline practices too. And you're right. This, this is kind of a natural outgrowth of uh, my interest in, in safe schools and security technologies. Um, uh, I, I really think that uh, certain practices like restorative justice, where students aren't seen as a problem, uh, but they're seen as as people with problems that can be solved through class open cl- classroom communication and, and problem solving activity. Uh, how can we listen to students? How can we solve the problems that arise in the classroom in in communicative, democratic sort of ways? Um, I think it's it's uh, it is the case that a democratic classroom is a safer classroom uh, for for the reasons that I've talked about because there's open communication and there's there's trust um, and students feel like they they have a voice. Um, so I think um, establishing that culture early and as problems arise, dealing it dealing with it through avenues like restorative justice, where there's a, a an open dialogue about what's happening and where students uh, have have a uh, have a voice in shaping classrooms moving forward i think these can't but help but make for for safer uh, schools the third thing i would say to teachers and, and administrators is uh it's okay to sometimes recognize that the limitations of schools and classrooms in solving this problem uh i think it's it's really unfair that we always turn to schools and say, okay, schools, you solve this problem. Uh, when really we have a mental health crisis in this country, uh, we have a, a culture of unrestricted access to, to firearms. Uh, I don't think you have to be kind of a magical thinker uh, to think that some sensible gun reform policies could make a difference. Uh, universal background checks, uh, that that sort of thing, to, in reducing gun violence, and that would... would play a role in reducing gun violence in schools to some extent. So I agree with Sam that it's not the the final solution, but I think these these broader social policies should play a part of the solution, and we need to stop putting this all on schools to solve by themselves. Um, so uh, I think it's teachers. Teachers have a, a, an obligation to, to advocate for these larger social policy changes as well. Thank you. Samantha? Yeah. Um, Brian, you said something along the lines of a democratic classroom is a safer classroom. And I just want to underscore that because in, you know, in thinking about what it would be like to learn to live with guns or, or some uh, sort of elective uh, in which kids are, are physically learning with a, with the object that is a gun. Um, I think first comes and uh, first has to come a handful of things. One is real uh, shifts towards democratic education in the classroom. And for me, that is not um, just a shift towards, you know, like elected governance in schools, um, though that would be good too. Uh, but really understanding that learning and living together is the project of democracy, that we live in associations and that life is associational. This requires communication it requires a joint formation of purpose, right? Understanding each other and, and engaging in each other's projects. This is both students as peers, but also teachers and students uh, creating a space that is shared, right? Where responsibility is shared, trust is shared, agency is shared. Um, this also has to be a space that rejects the study of war um, or the project of life that is some sort of hierarchalization towards dominance and um and oppression. Uh, so, you know, doing away with um, structures of, of gender and structures of school status hierarchy. Brian mentioned a, a couple of times, you know, that the school being this um, place where we've got queens and kings and, um, you know, folks on the bottom and folks on the top, uh, but instead a place where we are learning to live together. I think should all of that unfold? Now, I recognize that's huge. Uh, then we could be in a place to really learn with objects. And we have uh, curricular models like shop class uh, 
in front of us, right? That that we've also done away with um, soundly as a society. And unfortunately, you know, I think um, Mike Rose, uh, the mind at work, right, uh, is somebody who we could turn to here of thinking about what it is to be a human who engages with objects, who does things uh, uh, on a daily, you know, sort of everyday things that teach us who we are. Uh, guns are something we should learn to live with. They, they are a part of everyday lives. Uh, and I good gun laws would be great, right? Or sensible gun laws would be great. Universal background checks, all of that's really important. But we can print guns at home. 3D printers make it such that folks can create the gun in the, you know, in the back room. Uh, it's also the case that, you know, with the the ways in which guns are traded across state lines. Um, there was a shooting here in Boston this past weekend uh, and the, you know, guns moved across, across the state lines uh, for folks to get them. They were, they were gotten legally in other parts of the country. So it's, it's just the case that no matter what, there are going to be loopholes in, in any sort of gun policy that, that we enact. I think it's still good um, to enact strong policy and that that may help, but uh, the, the more fulsome way to imagine a future in which gun violence is less is one in which we take seriously the project of democratic education. And that requires learning to live with objects. I think that is a project of democratic education, in fact. Thank you. Um, I, I will say, um, uh, Sam I, has uh, a book coming out if it's not already out on this very very topic and it's wonderful and you you should all check it out and read it carefully so uh, I, I want to put a Sam's kind of being humble here about about her book project so I want to chime <laughs> in for her and say it's awesome and you, you all should check it out thank you thank you Ryan um, I'm gonna end here by saying thank you both for your different angles at this issue and for your generosity in the conversation and um, I am excited about both of your books and um, the projects that you're doing on this uh, what what is a really important topic Um, so thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you thank you Kara and that is our show Many thanks to Brian and Samantha for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. Many thanks to the listener who recently reviewed the show as excellent, important. Listener suggestions support us to do this work better. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests. So, for Derek Gottlieb, and in two weeks when we put up the next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.